Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to take your Bible and turn to Proverbs 31. I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. Moms have enough to deal with. We don't need to lay on them some impossible burden out of Psalm 30 or Proverbs 31. So take your Bible and turn to Matthew 13. Matthew 13. I, I want to wish a happy Mother's Day to all the moms as well. And, uh, and for those of you who Mother's Day is a difficult time, I want you to know that, that many of us know that and we're praying for you. And, and um, we hope that the Lord will comfort you on a day like today. Uh, he's certainly capable of doing it. Uh, Matthew chapter 13. And we are continuing, we've, we've been going through uh, the book of Matthew for a while now, so if, you've, if you haven't been here before, if you haven't been here in a while, welcome. We're glad that you're here this morning. Um, we're going to look at Jesus' parable of the wheat and the weeds. And as you make your way there, I want to ask you a question. What would you cut out? What would you cut out? And I'm not talking about your diet. I'm not talking about cutting carbs or whatever. In fact, let me just share a little perspective with you. We were out to eat last night, and I saw a 90-year-old man eating ice cream. So to do, do with that what you will, okay? Nothing wrong with that. And that's my hope. I hope I've reached 90 years old and I'm still eating ice cream. Now, I'm not talking about what would you cut out of your diet. I'm, I, I want to know, have you ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? Have you ever heard of the Jefferson Bible? The Jefferson Bible is this... This artifact, this amazing, really, work that Thomas Jefferson did where he took the Bible and he was a, a brilliant man. Let, let's not escape the fact that he had some very good ideas. I mean, he wrote the Declaration of Independence, right? He was the third president of the United States. He's not, he's not a not smart man. Uh, there are some things that he obviously did that were very not smart, but that's true of all of us. But he had the Jefferson Bible, and this is what he did. He took a Bible, and he literally took a knife, a scalpel, and he cut out the passages he did not like. He made his own Bible with all the things that he liked and he thought that should be in there. And so this is not—we do this sometimes. We may not use a knife, but we might uh, pick and choose which passages we like to believe— which ones we'd like to live by. And I think we'd all agree that one part of the Bible, one doctrine or teaching of the Bible that almost many, I would say this is totally anecdotal, but probably nine out of ten people would want to cut out of the Bible is the doctrine of hell. Happy Mother's Day. We're talking about hell this morning. <laughs> but this is a doctrine and a truth that in reality, it's a reality that many find difficult. And I want you to understand it's not just non-Christians or people from other faiths that find this difficult. R.C. Sproul, one of the, the most influential uh, Reformed theologians of our time, was asked one time, what doctrine do you struggle with the most? And he simply responded, hell. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you struggle with that doctrine or that teaching. Maybe, maybe you don't think hell exists. You think that's a, a, a relic of a, of a lesser scientific time and a, a lesser uh, informed period in world history. But in our text this morning, we cannot escape the realities of hell 
and the reality of judgment. When we look in Matthew chapter 13, we're going to start in verse 24. We're going to read verses 24 through 30 and look at the parable that Jesus teaches. Then we're going to skip over to verses 36 through 39 and talk about Jesus interpreting the parable. And then we're going to spend some time at the end making application. And I hope you'll trust me to see that we're going to end up in a good place. Even though you're wondering, why are we talking about hell on Mother's Day? So, beginning in verse 24, Jesus presents another parable to them. It says, The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while people were sleeping, his enemy came, sowed weeds among the wheat, and they left. And when the plants sprouted and produced grain, then the weeds also appeared. And the landowner's servants came to him and said, Master, didn't you sow good feed in your field or good seed in your field? Then where did the weeds come from? And he says, An enemy did this. And so the servants say, Do you want us to go and pull them up to pull up the weeds? He says, No. When you pull up the weeds, you might also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and tie them in bundles and burn them. But collect the wheat in my barn. So that's the parable Jesus teaches. So let's take a moment and pray and then we'll get into uh, the text. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you loved us so much to reveal truth to us uh, in, in a way that we can understand and respond Oh, Lord, as we look at this text, God, we want to see the, the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ for us. And Lord, sometimes the light shines most brightly when it's set in front of a tremendous darkness. And that's what we see this morning, that Jesus, you are the light of the world. You are the light of all things. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So remember, we said uh, two weeks ago that when Jesus is sharing these parables, he's talking about the kingdom. The main topic is the kingdom. And we see that in verse 24, right? The kingdom of heaven, right? The kingdom of Jesus Christ, of God the Father, the kingdom of God may be compared. So the subject is the kingdom. So Jesus is teaching something about the kingdom. This is a kingdom parable, a kingdom tale. So whatever Jesus has to teach us, it has to do with the kingdom, okay? So the parable tells about this seed and this farmer. He plants the seed and somebody comes in. The enemy sows weeds among uh, the harvest and the crop and they both grow up. And the servants ask, can we pull them out? And he says, no, because if you do, you'll destroy some of the harvest and the, the wheat that I have planted. So just wait until the end and then we'll get the wheat and we'll store it in the barn. And the weed we will take and we will put it in the fire. We will burn the weeds such that they are destroyed. So then Jesus uh, does some more teaching. And then when we get to verse 36, Jesus gives us the parable and its interpretation. So we don't have to ask what Jesus meant. We just have to read what he said. But notice it's, he teaches the parable to the crowd. But then he gives the interpretation to his disciples. So not only is Jesus teaching about the kingdom, but what he, the people he really wants to know about the kingdom are his disciples. And so I think that means you and me. If, if we're believers here this morning and we're, we're following Christ, we've trusted him, Jesus wants us to know this about the kingdom. So there's something each Christian needs to know about the kingdom this morning. 
Look at what he says. He's given to the disciples. And he says that they left the crowds and they went into the house. And his disciples approached him and said, explain the parable of the weeds in the field. So can we stop right there? You know what I love about this? Jesus doesn't say, you mean you can't figure it out? They approached him. And they say, can you help us understand this? And what does Jesus do? He helps them. That's the heart of Jesus for his disciples. But notice he says in verse 37, it replied, he replied, so here's the interpretation. The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed, well, these are the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the children of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. So that's the interpretation that Jesus gives. So there's a couple facets to this parable. Number one, there's the son of man. He's the sower. And when Jesus talks about the son of man, he's talking about himself. He's saying, I am doing something in the field. And what's the field? The world, right? But he uses this title, the son of man. That's a, that's a title that the Messiah would have. So not only is Jesus saying, I'm the, I'm the one sowing, he's making a claim that he's the Christ, he's the Messiah. This language of son of man comes out of Daniel, of this great Messiah figure who's going to establish a kingdom. So he says that there is a, a seed that's mentioned. And what is the seed? Well, he says it's the children of the kingdom. So listen, Christian, that's you and me. So Jesus says, I'm doing a work about the kingdom in which I'm spreading my people around the field, around the world, okay? And so you have this picture of kingdom growth, kingdom expansion, kingdom spread. The, the, the kingdom of Christ will grow, Jesus says. But something else will grow because the enemy is at work too. The devil, Jesus says, is what? The evil one. He says in verse 39, the enemy who sowed the evil is the devil, and so the devil's at work sowing too. We have to understand that in our day, the devil is not idle. Uh, he he did, by no means sits back and thinks that he's, a, he's accomplished his means and his ends and his desires. But what we see is kingdom grows in the field, but another kingdom grows. The wheat grows but the weeds grow too. Righteousness and, and the kingdom of Christ grows, but also the wickedness as well. Both grow together. That is, until the harvest. And what is the harvest? Jesus says the harvest is the end of the age. Look at verse 39. The harvest is the end of the age. There is an, there is an age. We are in an age right now. A period of time. And that period of time is going to come to an end. And something's going to happen at the end of this age. Where the harvest takes place. And what's going to happen is what well, says the Son of Man is going to do what? He's going to send out his angels because the harvesters are angels. They're going to gather up the wheats and the weeds. So that's the explanation of the parable. Jesus uses this parable to teach about a future event. Now, you might be asking, why was such a parable necessary? Well, my guess is it's probably necessary for the exact same reason it's necessary today. Who among us has not wondered, Lord, if the kingdom's growing and you're establishing your kingdom, why does it seem like wickedness grows too? Lord, if you really are seated on the throne, 
and you reign forever. Why is it that when we look around us in so many places, it does not look like the kingdom is growing? Well, Jesus says that is what we ought to expect. Jesus came and he started preaching. If you go to Matthew chapter 4, it says Jesus he began preaching that the kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. So how is it that Jesus can inaugurate this amazing, glorious, righteous kingdom? And yet we see the types of things we see today. Where's that new peace that Jesus talks about? Where's the, the kingdom, the, the earth-shaking renewal? Where is all the things that we want to see happen? Well, Jesus tells us this parable because the disciples would find themselves in exactly the same place. Same place we find ourselves. Where is that? In this, this already but not yet age where Jesus has established the kingdom, but it hasn't come in fullness yet. And in the meantime, there's going to be a growing kingdom of righteousness, but there's also going to be a growing kingdom of evil. And Jesus says, that's what to expect. So what do we do with that? Well, look at verse 40. Look at verse 40 because here's where the application kicks in. You see what Jesus says in verse 40? What's the first word you have in verse 40? Therefore. Okay, so Jesus, what do we do with this? How do we apply this? What are we supposed to do with this? Therefore, in conclusion, in light of what I've just said, just as the weeds are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. Look at this, verse 41. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will gather from His kingdom all who sin and those guilty of lawlessness. And they, the angels, will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then verse 43 says, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. So what are we to do with this? Well, I hope if you remember nothing else out of today, that this is the main thing that you understand. Because Jesus will ultimately establish His kingdom. Believers persevere in patient trust despite the present presence of evil let me say that again because jesus will ultimately establish his kingdom believers persevere in patient trust despite the present presence of evil jesus says look i know how things are and you're not wrong to see things that way but Jesus says, I want you to know they're not always going to be that way. Jesus gives us a glimpse into some very stark realities of the kingdom. I want to give you five realities that Jesus points to in this text. Number one, he says, there will be evil in the world and it will grow. There will be evil in the world and it will grow. There is no escaping this fact. We see it every day. This is not something I need to prove to you, right? There is evil in the world and it grows. That's the first reality Jesus points to. But the second reality is that the kingdom of the sun grows too. <laughs> you see, it's not either or. Despite the growth of the kingdom of Satan, Christ, the, the Son of God, His kingdom grows too. 
So understand this, as much as we see all the evil and the wickedness around us, that's not the only thing that's happening in the world today. Now, sometimes it may feel that way because we might look at our particular little bubble. We might look in just our family, in our job. And we might look in our, in our state or our country. We might see, oh man, there's so much evil going on. But meanwhile, in another place in the world, God is moving. God is saving. God is changing people day after day after day. And so there's evil in the world and it will grow. But number two, the kingdom of the sun will grow too. So we have this reality. We have, we have the kingdom and then the presence of evil. But then the third reality is this. One day, listen to me, one day the son will establish his kingdom in fullness. There is coming a day at the end of the age when Jesus Christ gives the word. He sends out his angels and the wicked are separated and the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of the Father, is fully established. So that is placed before us. That, that is the goal line that, that Jesus is telling us will come. So the third reality is that one day he will establish the fullness of his kingdom. The fourth reality Jesus points to is that only one kingdom wins in the end. Only one is established. And it's Christ. It's his kingdom. Notice the language Jesus uses, right? In verse 41, or in verse 40, they will be gathered, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man, Jesus is, Jesus is saying, I will send out whose angels? My angels. There is no sense in which Jesus is just kind of riding a wave, and then he just happens to end up to be king at the end of all it said. No, he's already king. He's going to send out his angels, and then notice what it says. They will gather them from his kingdom. There is a kingdom here. It's Christ. The evil is allowed to exist. It grows, but it's still his kingdom. And one day he's going to purge his kingdom. But then the fifth reality, because Christ and his kingdom wins in the end, understand this, there are two destinies. There's two groups, and that's it. There are those who shine like the sun, who get to live in the Father's kingdom. Those who enter into blessedness, fullness of joy, eternal life, and peace. That's group one. And then group two, those who are thrown into a place that is described as a blazing furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That place is hell. Hell is real. It is something that we as Christians do not need to be ashamed of. Sometimes we use euphemisms, we use softer language. We talk about the consequences of our sin is death and eternal separation. We talk about eternal condemnation. And all of those are true, but quite honestly, I think sometimes we're just afraid to say the word hell. I think about the story I read of a guy who was witnessing to a college student. He was talking with him. This was a very smart student. 
He was into philosophy. He was into science. And so this, this college minister was going through all the arguments for the existence of God, talking about medieval philosophy. They were talking about Aquinas, Thomas Aquinas, and they were doing all these things. And then they got into apologetics. They were engaging people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. Uh, you know, their books, The God Delusion and God is Not Great. And they're just talking and talking and talking. And he does this for years. And the guy graduates college. He moves on. And the guy never leads the guy to faith in Christ. The minister never leads the guy to faith in Christ. And then a couple of years later, he gets a phone call. And he says, hey, man, I want you to know I visited a church this Sunday. And I gave my life to Christ. God has saved me. I, I don't know how to explain it. It just happened. The Holy Spirit did something in my life. And now I follow Christ. And you know what that college minister's first question was? Well, what did he preach on? You know, the idea is, well, what, what, what did he say? Like, what, what can I put in my toolbox to use next time? You know what the pastor preached on? The reality of hell. And that guy was so convicted because he had done all the philosophical arguments... He had done all the theological arguments, all the scientific arguments, but it was in that moment that he realized he failed to tell that young man about the reality of hell. Now, I think part of the reason why many of us have moved away and, and many in the church have moved away is because a lot of times, and I think this was fair to say, a lot of times the gospel, the good news of Jesus was presented as a get out of hell free card, right? Right? If you walk the aisle, you come and you pray a prayer, God stamps your passport and you go to heaven when you die, right? And that's how it was presented. And, and, and the pendulum has kind of swinged all, swinged, swung all the way over to now where, where we don't want to talk about it. But it's true that there is a sense in which hopefully that motivates some of us to trust in Christ, because we hear of this place that is a blazing furnace and weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? Well, there's two types of, group, two types of groups in this place called hell. There's those who weep. So understand this. When somebody dies apart from Christ, you know, when, when, we, when we die, Paul says to be absent from the body for believers is to be present with the Lord. Believers depart and they go into the presence of Christ. Unbelievers, those who aren't Christians, depart and they go to hell. And it says there's people there weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that means one group is like this. They wake up in hell and they're like, oh no, no. That's weeping. And then there's gnashing of teeth. That's anger. That's those who wake up in heaven and they go, no. How dare you, God? Who do you think you are? And that's how they spend eternity, angry. And there's no relief for their anger. There's no joy. There's no blessedness. There's no hope. There's no consolation for their weeping. It's a place of utter misery. So I want to press this home just very quickly if I can. Every single one of us in this room, you are headed to one of two places. It's like the saying goes, is your body going to stop going down at six feet? Or is it going to keep going? When we, are, when we pass away, when we die, every single one of us, think about this, every co-worker, 
Every parent, every child, every stranger, every single person you meet, every single one of you here this morning, when you leave here, when you die, you will go to one of two places. How, do, how would that affect how you live the rest of today? The rest of this week, the rest of your life. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He once said that if sinners are to be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. So let me ask you, who can you warn? You're being warned right now. But who can you warn and who can you pray for? Jesus says that there is coming a day when the wheats and the weeds will be separated. Question is, which one are you? Have you trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? You see, remember our main idea. Because Jesus will ultimately establish his kingdom, we are to persevere in patient trust despite the presence of evil. It's good to hear and know that, right? Are you comforted by that? Or are you discomforted by what you hear? I want to say to you, those of you that have lost mothers in the past year, or for, for whom Mother's Day is still a, a painful day, I want you to know that there's tremendous comfort in this, that if they are believers, they are with Christ and fully blessed. So what do we do with this? We persevere. We don't give up. Don't buy the lie that there's no coming judgment. Don't look at all the darkness around you and, and, and doubt the, exist, the existence of a shining place above. My family and I have been reading through Chronicles of Narnia. I'm sorry, folks. This is the only leisurely reading I get. So if I, I know last sermon I quoted Chronicles of Narnia, just deal with it, okay? But it's interesting, I think the Lord's been, I think the Lord has a hand in this because as we're going through Matthew and as we're going through this book, it just, they go together so well, but we, we're, we've been reading the book, The Silver Chair, and uh, the, the three companions fall down a hole and they, they are all the way down, miles and miles and miles below the earth. There's no light, it's all darkness. And they eventually come into contact with the queen of this underland. And she begins to cast a spell and an enchantment on them. And she plays a, an instrument. And they say to her, we're, we're from the land where the sun shines. And she goes, what is the sun? And they say, well, it's, it's like that light over there. And then she says, I'm certain you were dreaming. You, you thought of a the lamp, and then you, you dreamed, you dreamt about a, a larger lamp. And the queen continues to work her enchantment on the party. And they're, you have to understand the context. They're surrounded by darkness. So, so they're in this dark cave. There's no darkness. They haven't seen light in days. And now they're under an enchantment in this pitch black dark room. And the queen begins to make them question, is there a sun? And at one point, the four individuals that are trying to stand against her slowly uh, fall under her enchantment such that they start to chant in kind of that zombie-like numb way, there was never a son. There was never a son. But then, 
one of the characters musters every bit of strength. And it says she felt as if huge weights were laid on her lips. And at last, with an effort that seemed to take all, I love this, that took all the good out of her, she said, there's Aslan. In this pitch blackness, where the, the world around them would tell them there is no sun, there is no place out there, there is no place above, this young lady says, no, but there's Aslan. When the world says that this is all there is, there's Aslan. When the world says that there's no shining place above, there's Jesus. In the dark and sunless world that we sometimes find ourselves in, what brings light is not a sun. Notice, it's a name. She says there's a name. And so I have some news for you this morning. All we've talked about about the kingdom, that's not even the best part. We haven't even gotten to the best part of the text. Because the best part of the text is about a name. You might say it's between the lines. You say, how do I know that? Where am I getting that from? Well, listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Paul describes every single one of us apart from Christ. In Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 1, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were, listen, by nature, children under wrath as the others were also. So what that text in Ephesians means is that when we read our text this morning, Understand that you are not born naturally a child of the kingdom. When Jesus talks about these children of the kingdom and those who will be shining like the sun, the righteous, that's not you apart from Christ. In fact, our natural state, as John would say, and Jesus would say, is we are of our father, the devil. So understand that your default destination because of your sin, because of your rebellion, your default destination in the next life was to that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We sin. We cause sin. We bring guilt. We are guilty of lawlessness. We are the lawbreakers that Jesus talks about will be removed from his kingdom. So how is it then? In the very next verse, he says, then the righteous will shine. The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not one. We're missing a vital piece of information because if there's none righteous, we all sin. We all deserve to be in that place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There should be nobody in that kingdom except Jesus. The, tri the, the triune God should be the only one. So where do these righteous ones shining come from? <laughs> Look at what it says, verse 43, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. So not only do you go from being a child of the devil, you go into being a child of the father. How is that possible? How is it possible that Jesus can talk about the saints shining? It's there plain as day. We're lawbreakers. We're children of the devil, but there in the kingdom, though guilty, we shine 
Though lawbreakers, we're redeemed. Though sinful, saved. Though children of the devil, we are now children of the Father. Jesus says, let anyone who has ears listen. What's the difference? Jesus is the difference. You say, what's my only hope? Jill says, there's Aslan. Our hope this morning is this, there's Jesus. What gets us from being in the verses about the guilty to being the righteous who shine like the sun, it's Jesus. When Jesus goes to the cross, understand that what he's doing there is taking all that lawlessness, all that sin, all that guilt for your rebellion, for your sin, and he is taking the punishment that you deserve. All the, the wrath, all the anger, the righteous anger of God for your sin is poured out on Jesus in your place. Jesus dies, he's buried, and he rises again. And now the Bible promises us that if we trust him, if we place our faith in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins, we are cleansed of our sins, released from our guilt. We are brought and adopted into God's family, and we are given Jesus' righteousness. So understand this. When you read that, you're like, yes, I'm going to be shining in the Father's kingdom. Understand that that brightness isn't yours. It's Jesus's. <laughs> Jesus loved you. So much that he took you, a filthy sinner destined for hell, removes your filthy rags and puts them on himself and gives you his shining, brilliant righteousness so that one day you'll stand in his kingdom, shining like the sun. Let anyone who has ears hear. If you're a believer here this morning, your hope is Jesus. Your hope is that Jesus promised the kingdom would be established. And if you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you've never trusted him as your savior, this can be the day. You've been warned. There is a place for people who do not trust in Christ. It's not that when you die, you cease to exist. It's not that you fade into oblivion. You continue to exist aware that you will remember this day, if not all the other times that you've been warned. But at that point, there's no going back. There's no second chances. So why not today? Why not come to Christ and be forgiven, be cleansed, be set free from whatever it is that you struggle with, whatever sin ensnares you, come to Christ and know that when that day comes, you're not going to be separated into with the weeds, but you'll be gathered in into the kingdom of righteousness with the wheat. We're going to come to a moment where you need to decide today. Today's the day. However, the Lord is leading you to respond. We're going to take a few moments and I'll be here at the front if you need somebody to pray with you. If you have questions, feel free to come ask me. But this is a chance for you to respond to what you've heard. Either asking God to help you with your patient trust of his establishing the kingdom. It's in his time, not yours. But also, maybe you know that today is the day 
Today is the day of salvation where you need to turn over your life to Jesus Christ. I'd be happy to help you with that as well. So let me pray for us. We'll have a time where you can respond where you are as the Lord leads. Father, we thank you for Jesus who is the difference. God, that our hope is in Jesus, not in ourselves and not in really in the brightness or the darkness of this world. But God, that we are forgiven and freed and cleansed by Christ. We know, God, that we, we can persevere. Father, help us to, to trust your good plan. And God, help us to look forward to that great and glorious day when your kingdom will be fully, completely established forever and ever. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.